Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Andrew Barnes. He's a financier turned entrepreneur, turned crusader of workplace, culture, and well-being. Andrew's the leader of a global movement known as the four-day work week, which he's implemented across all his companies. In our conversation, we go across a number of topics from building businesses, to his leadership style, to boats, to cars, to art, and into the story of how his four-day work week came to be. It's a very enjoyable interview. And if you're interested in a four-day work week for yourself or for your company, and how to implement it in your business, be sure to listen to our episode with Joe O'Connor, where we talk about the details of why and how it can become a reality in your company. Now, enjoy the show. Andrew, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Corey. Good to be here. I'm very keen to be having this conversation as the foundation of it is the four-day work week, something that you're truly spearheading, pioneering, and setting the tone globally for. But as well, you've got a really interesting history from an entrepreneurial standpoint and a business building standpoint, as well as a governance and public company standpoint. So I think the conversation is going to be broad. Yeah, I think it is too. Looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. I think for our listeners, the best way to start off is, can you give us some background on yourself and set the tone of who you are and yeah, the career that you've had? Yeah, look, I think in reality, my career has been a little bit eclectic in the context that I was a naval officer. I'd like to say I'm a failed spy. I applied, decided to do it, and then chickened out. I then decided at the ripe old age of about 22 that actually I was mucking around and, and wasn't focusing on you know, getting down to a solid career. So I gave myself a good talking to and joined a bank. It shows you how far I'd fallen. <laughs> <laughs> and then really spent the next, I think, 20 years not really enjoying banking. But I had a really interesting career in the context. I went from retail banking to merchant banking in the city of London. And then at the stock market crash, I got sent to Australia. Three days notice for a month and stayed for 20 years. And that was the thing that moved me into investment banking in Australia, which I did for probably the next uh, 13 years. And to be honest, I absolutely hated it. And I hated it. I hated me. There's a wonderful phrase in the book, Nick Hornby's book, Fever Pitch. And I'll apologize for the expletive in advance. Is life shit because Arsenal is shit? or the other way around. And when when you think about it, that was what was coming up with my career. I I hated Sydney, but I couldn't work out why I hated Sydney, why I hated my life. And I realized it was actually my job was coloring my environment, not my environment coloring my job, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so I, I left banking and then did a bit of tech entrepreneurship, 
came back in to do some turnaround stuff in, of all things, the trust industry. And then it went from there. You know, we've done a, a couple of IPOs. We bought and sold businesses. And in the end, I came back to the Southern Hemisphere. I'd gone back to the UK for a little while. I came back to the Southern Hemisphere to do a perpetual guardian story, which really has been the last 10 years of running a trust company here in, in New Zealand, but, but also along the side doing tech, payroll, legal tech, agriculture, I have a vineyards and things like that. So really now, it's only now that I think that I'm actually doing the things that I love, not the things that just gave me money. Wow. It's interesting to hear because I certainly don't have any vineyards under my portfolio of assets, but I think that I've ran a similar path, a bit of merchant banking, a bit of investment banking, and really realizing how much I really did not enjoy the environment that I was in. But then I look at it and I think that for me right now, the lifestyle that I'm building and the company that I'm building with my team is really become possible because of the experiences I had within the banking world or within the finance world. And so I would say that those 13 years were probably very, very powerful, informative and enabling you to access capital and tell a good story. Well, not so much the access capital, interestingly, but tell a good story, yes. But it's interesting. I often say that I think about what my employer would have done, my investment banking employer would have done when I'm running my own business. And then I do exactly the opposite. (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And a little bit of that is around... I mean, culture, and we talk about, you know, culture and leadership and things like that. But actually, I think often in business, we think about managing businesses and we don't think about leadership. We don't think necessarily about really the impact and how we get the best out of people. And I think that for me has been the big journey Mm. over the period of time I came out of what was a very, very successful organization. In my own right, I'd been successful. But actually, I learned nothing about how to lead, motivate, and inspire people in the whole Mm. of that period of time. Because the environment, and if you've worked in the industry, Corey, you'd know, is a bit dog-eat-dog. It's a little bit your biggest competitor often is the person sitting on the the next desk. Yeah, I think that's what I'm understanding. You've got to get used to that. Yeah. Yeah, so I really wanted to move away from that and then what we're trying to do now we're thinking about different methods of working different methods of inspiring and motivating people yeah really really interesting can you just for the audience perhaps quantify some of the ventures you've been a part of some of the companies you've built today if i read correctly you're the former chairman of macquarie no i (laughs) no i was an exec director of macquarie not a chairman of it okay um but I chaired realestate.com.au. That's the biggest property listing website, REA Group, in Australia. In fact, I acquired that and for the group and then floated it on yeah. the markets. I have floated a business called Australian Wealth Management, which was a spin-out from Trans-Tasman Insurance Group called Tower. I run now I own Perpetual Guardian, which is New Zealand's largest statutory company. What else have we done? We floated a business called Paysource, which is a digital payroll company. I own a business called Arkan, which is the world's leading legal tech 
business for Wills, operating mm. in you know the UK, uh, a little bit in Canada, Australia, South Africa, and New Zealand. So very much the old dominions, and sort of I've stumbled across you know other odds and sods uh, along the way. I ran a business in the UK called Best Invest for a while. I sold that to private capital. So you know my career's done everything from running shipping companies to running a trust company and all things in between. So I came into finance at the period of time, the last hurrah of the generalist, where you could be chucked on a plane and sent somewhere around the world to to do something. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, you so specialized in the analysts and the on and on, just well understood. I love the eclectic nature of it. And on a side topic, a wheel is something that is high on my regard. So what was the name of that company? I'll just take a quick note. And is it applicable in Canada? Arkin. Yeah. Arkin. A-R-K-E-N. Arkin. Okay. Um, and we do primarily the picks and shovels and the gold rush. And we're the people who, who have probably the most sophisticated will writing software anywhere. So it's used by big institutions down to legal practices. There's lots of people who do simple stuff. Okay. But this is the really complex stuff. We can do it multi-jurisdictional, multilingual. We can do Sharia. You know, all of oh, the, wow. the different variants. So it's uh, it's an interesting business. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, very cool. Well, I'm curious that with this eclectic background, what has been probably or perhaps the largest step forward in your career in wealth and business building and perhaps the largest step back that you learned from? Look, for me, I always look back to a period of time now, about 20 years ago, really, because that was the point in time where I rethought leadership in business. Okay. And I can pinpoint it exactly, you know, walking across a, a park, Rushkos Bay Park in Sydney, and really thinking about this issue, why I, I didn't feel particularly fulfilled in what I was doing. And what I then did is I started a process of rethinking leadership. So for me, a lot of my success as a businessman came because I changed how I led how I communicated. I'd always been good at the strategy stuff. I mean, I could find an opportunity, identify an opportunity. But from that point in time was the first time that I started to build businesses that were not just a good business, but were a good team with a good cohort of leaders and a very, very strong culture. And I've tried to do that in all my businesses since. And hey, presto, Surprise, surprise, if you have an engaged, empowered, enthusiastic team who understand where the business is going, what their role is, understand that they're valued and appreciated, you actually get better business outcomes. <laughs> Go figure, hey? Earth-shattering, isn't it? Yeah, but, yeah. But I think, it, I think it's something that we actually quite often forget. Well, I think, I mean... For those in leadership positions, and when you know you draw on the world of investment banking, of public markets, and quarterly reporting, it's probably very it's very easy to forget the power of culture and the need to invest in it. How do you quantify that? Well, exactly right, exactly right. And actually, sometimes the things that you have to do in order to create a culture, actually, quite often, superficially, you look at those and you think that those aren't going to add to the bottom line. Hmm. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, the four-day week later on, but one of the biggest resistances to the four-day week 
is that the perception from a stakeholder perspective is that this doesn't add value. It isn't a strong driver of corporate value. Right. And if you were to take me back to 20 years ago, that point in time where you saw that change in your leadership style, what was it that triggered it? And what was the before and after? Well, it was the Macquarie moment. It was this recognition that I really didn't. I mean, I seriously didn't like the person that I could become. I seriously didn't like what was happening as far as the impact on my family was concerned. And, you know, that wasn't a culture that you could keep going. You Mm. had to step out of it. And I did. I mean, I stepped out of business completely for about a year. And I went back to do, I mean, I qualified as an archaeologist, of all things. And I went back to do archaeology at Sydney University and disappeared off to do some digs in Uzbekistan and Cambodia. And I then came back after that. And at that point, I... You know, I then needed to get back into business and the workforce. But I came back with a completely different approach and attitude. I mean, materially different approach. And I think that was a reaction to what had been at the time an extremely toxic culture. I think in fairness, I don't think anybody now would tolerate the culture that was then. But the world's moved a lot in 20 years. Right, right. And so I can imagine the, you know, long days pushing for deals, pushing for bonuses. It's all money. And that dog eat dog too, somewhere now coming in. And and I would, what I can hear, what I'm picking up is that you're finding far more fulfillment and value out of leading with people first. Yeah. And the results are better. I mean, nobody does well if the culture is one of of fear or threat or Mm. absolute pressure. You know, people work best when they believe in what they're doing. And that, you know, I think we've got to be careful. No, you know, I always say nobody goes over the top for a flag or a mission statement. Okay. You know, they go over because actually the person on the left and the person on their right, it's the strength of the team. Collectively. Right. Yeah. That makes something work. And that's actually is at the heart. I see that differentiating factor there. Yeah. I mean, it's like, hey, we've got a great mission. We've got a great vision. But are people actually going to throw them over the line, themselves over the line? It's no, it's who they're there with and the camaraderie and the the sense of, yeah, of I mean, yeah. growth. If you think, Corey, what do we do? We go and get a couple of consultants and we sit down and we come up with some wonderful buzzwords and we put it all together and we say, isn't that fabulous? And in the end, Nobody owns that statement because it comes from the top down. And what I have always tried to do is actually not stand and talking down. And my very first business after coming out of, of Macquarie, I can remember having this. I joined a business and it was a town hall and the chief exec stands on the podium, the platform and talks at the people. And he says, you know, this is our goal, looking at them talking down at them behind a podium. And I then had to do my piece. And this is, again, one of the very first points when it changed. I came off the podium and I went down and I stood in the middle of the team, looking up at the screen with our objectives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And talked about our goals and what we were going to achieve. Wow. And got a standing ovation. 
Yeah. It's I, the no, first no, no, no. only time in a, in a sort of a business projection that I think that had ever happened. But what I was tapping in was that the people in the divisions that I was taking over, they were very, had been very low morale. And what I was doing is saying, actually, the world's changed. This is now about us. This is about what we are going to achieve together. And frankly, I'm never going to ask you to do something that I won't do myself. And that has underpinned my philosophy ever since because we turned the worst performing division, Brown, to be the best performing division in Southeast Asia, Australasia. We had the worst voice of the employee feedback and we turned it around to being not just the best but got a 95% satisfaction level, which was unheard of. But yeah. did that in a period of literally about 12 months. I mean, that was the work that we did in terms of how the leadership team worked together, how we communicated, when we had to make change, how we initiated change. And, you know, that was putting a division through a lot of pressure at the time. Do you have any examples yeah, of, we got of apples. initiatives that you put forward to create that cultural change? Well, see, I'm a great believer in communication. I think that... A communication isn't just the odd town hall. It isn't just you know, the odd meeting that you do. So we ran a series. We had to do this huge change. So we ran a, a series of fundamental processes to change that. So I used a broadcast message that would come on everybody's phone every week. I had an email thing that would come. We had a morning tea program where I would be going around into a different bit of business almost on a daily basis. We did celebrations and awards, things that we did. And then we had bigger town halls that we ran together. But I also insisted that my leadership team did the same Mm. so that they were also communicating all the time about what we were doing, what the challenges are, why we had to change it. We used to get groups together to work out as well how we were going to rebuild things from the bottom to make the business better, not from the top. Now, that was for a very short-term period of rebuilding, re-energizing a business. But at the end of the day, if leaders are not visible and are not able to clearly articulate what it is they want, they can have the best strategy in the world. But if your most junior person doesn't know what their role is and what their part in is and why what they do is important, then, funnily enough, it doesn't work. And all of that is not about managing the numbers, all of the other stuff. What that is about is about the primary function of senior execs' leadership. Hmm. That is their primary function. It is to create the environment where people can be their best. Yes. And I'm a very strong believer that that, actually works. So it doesn't separate from the fact that you've got to deliver on the numbers. You've got to do to generate the returns, etc. You've got to service the customers. Yeah. But the key thing is you've got to be able to articulate a whole journey and that role and why and what we're doing is important. I'm curious about your thoughts on providing autonomy and you know giving people more freedom to pull forward on towards the vision that we're all building. And the reason why I ask is because there's always with that freedom especially now with people working remote the potential that they can take advantage of that or that they're saying they understand but they perhaps they 
are just paying lip service. Have you ever seen or have you ever, in a way, perhaps been taken advantage or found that it hasn't worked? And how have you had to adjust to that? Well, I mean, look, I think reality is we know it doesn't work all the time. I mean, part of that is pick the right people. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And that's one of the problems, right? I mean, because one, often the time, what we do is we end up with a recruitment process that reflects the approach and the attitude of the people that we've already got. And if you want to do okay. cultural change, it's a bit of a problem if the people who, you know, well, you'll look like me, I'll have one of you. Mm. No, you're slightly different, I'll have one of you. Now, I try and, and I always have with my senior teams, not necessarily to pick a whole bunch of people who look, sound, act the same. Right, like just a room full of MBAs or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is not gender diversity. I mean, that is important. But this is diversity of thought. Mm. You know, what you need to do is, and often, you know, I can remember my head of, uh, in in investment bankers, my head of risk on the most complex option structures was a fine arts graduate. Really? Yeah, but had the best grasp of how you assess the risk on this stuff that I have ever seen. Now, I sort of get this in a little bit because I'm the child of artists for the most part. I'm the freak of the family. (laughs) I I was the one who went into business. Capitalist pig. I am a capitalist pig. But I think visually, when I'm looking at a problem, as much as anything else, I think of it almost as a picture of the images that I'm pulling together. And I think there is a bit of that because I'm using a different bit of my brain to tackle a business problem. That's what I like to see in in an organization. So, Because if you keep just employing exactly the self-same people, then you get the self-same answer. Hmm. Now, the other side of it is, as you said, do people take advantage? Well, occasionally they do, but that's all about how you manage people, how you motivate people, how you measure people. And I think one of the problems often is that we measure people in a very unsophisticated way. I mean, this Hmm. is, again, one of the things that's at the heart of the journey to the four-day week. If all I am worrying about is whether you are sitting at your desk, how long you spend doing something, that has very little relevance as to what your output is. Again and again and again, when we're talking with companies, you will get this question, well, how do I measure productivity? Well, if you're asking me how to measure productivity. What you're telling me is you're not measuring productivity. You're not measuring output. Mm. If you're not measuring output. How have you articulated to your employee what it is they should be doing in order to give you what you need to drive the business? Very interesting. Now, yeah, I think it's something I've seen time and time again where, and frankly, I'm bad at this, is actually the measurement and what is success. What are we defining success as where we're going and how are we measuring against it? And I can see in some organizations that measure of success is, are you in your seat at 7 a.m.? And are you there when I walk by your desk at 6? And Yeah, looking at... Yeah, and I know. I know. I did the city of London in in the 80s. You know, I mean, hell, we were out Americaning the Americans. I mean, (laughs) we had to be in... He had to be on the desk at seven in the morning. That meant a six o'clock train in the morning for me, just slightly before six. And if I got back to my place by 11 at night, I was doing well. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. It's certainly not the life I want to live. I'm really fascinated with mental models and how people think. And I'm also, you know, I want to draw on the example you had of your options 
your risk management person who had the fine arts degree. I find that so fascinating because they look at things in a different way. I'm very curious about your archaeological experience and your archaeological background. And how does that or how has it? Have you ever seen any ways that that's informed your the rest of your career or how you approach life now? The short answer is no. <laughs> <That's bigger. laughs> but there's a difference. My father always used to say that you went to university to be educated. You didn't go to be university to be trained. And therefore, he's right. You know, a discipline like archaeology, well, there's a bit of science, there's a bit of practical field work, there is research, there is you know, essay writing. But a lot of it is interpretation. It's looking at a whole series of, of facts or issues and trying to piece together the picture. Well, it sort of isn't that business, isn't that life? To look mm. at a whole pile of things and try and make sense out of it. And I think what we do today is that we have far too much emphasis. Sometimes it's needed, I, I grant you, but on training vocational education degrees. And as a consequence, the more you do that, the more you are taught the answer. Whereas uh. coming from an archaeological background and then having to teach myself how to read a set of accounts basically meant that there wasn't a right answer. No one had ever told me how to analyze a business, how to look at a, a set of accounts and come up with a solution. And, and so you know, if I go back to when I first went to Australia in, in 87 and I was running the credit risk department of the bank, I was out there. We pulled out of all of the Australian entrepreneurial exposures. We just pulled out. I sat down, went through the accounts, all of these companies are bust. And we did that two, three years before those companies went bust. And when they went bust, they went horribly bust, mm. taking lots of money with them. We had no exposure at all because I, hadn't followed or wasn't following the conventional wisdom about hmm. how you should look at these businesses. I just came in, started from scratch and thought about how would I analyze them. And I didn't analyze them from the top down. I analyzed them from the bottom up. Bizarrely, that's how you would probably assess an archaeological sign. Huh. There we go. I like the longer answer. I'll tell you that. <laughs> But but that's that's the kind of thing that I find so fascinating. I mean, in fact, just on a side, there's a, another guest we we're going to have on, and unfortunately, the interview didn't happen. But he's got an archaeological background, and I was just I was dying to just ask that question. So thank you for humoring me here. No worries. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. I want to continue down that path, and perhaps this is self-serving of my own interest, but I very much appreciate art and have started collecting and. And why it's important to me, I think, is because in ways it can, it's communicating in what I would say is a far more permanent way than we're starting to become accustomed to with the world of social media and so on. And I won't go bore anybody here with too far down the stories of the art that we have now, but it elicits such deep emotional responses. And I'm curious about your interest in art and why you've brought it into business and the power that you see behind it. Well, we use art as a tool. I mean, unashamedly, we've always used art as a tool. And when I took over the Perpetual Guardian, we took over Perpetual and then we bought New Zealand Guardian Trust, we created Perpetual Guardian. These were two of the dullest companies in the world. We are 1880s foundation. I mean, if you know trust companies, you would go and you have the image of the stone pillars on the outside of right. the yeah. 
the sepia prints and very dingy carpets. And it's all, every stereotype you could have thought of, that's what our business looked like. And so what I wanted to do was say, well, this is a new change, it's a new direction. We're going to rethink about how we're going to do things. And so one of the ways I did that was actually we threw out all the sepia prints and all the little watercolors and all the stuff that these people had, you know, somebody not had given them a picture at one point in time. Yeah. And, you know, seriously, of no real merit for the most part. And so what I did is whenever we opened a branch, not only had we got bright colors in, in the branch, but what I then did is I would go around and we would buy modern art. And the bit that defined this, I was reopening our Dunedin branch down the South Island, and, and I walked down there before the branch opening the night before, looked through the window, and we had this fabulous modern branch that looked bright and vibrant, and they'd hung all the old sepia prints back on the wall. I mean, it was just... So I walked around the corner the following morning to one of the local galleries, and I literally, they must have thought it was Christmas. And I literally went in and went, oh, I've got that one, that one, that one. I want you to lend me those two. And we whacked all this stuff up on the walls. And my team almost completely was shocked. You know, this is, no, no, we can't pop. And then the first customer walked in for the branch reopen and said, wow, look at that. And then the staff said, oh, well, actually, we'll have a look at this one over here. And by the end of the night, I had a deputation from the team saying, I know you borrowed that picture over there, but can we keep it? And the mindsets actually changed. So I absolutely use art through all our branches. We sponsor things like Sculpture on the Gulf here on Waiheke, Sculpture on the Shore. We do a lot of stuff on the art side because what I'm trying to do is get people to rethink, reimagine we are not what we used to be and that requires mm. you to look at the world and people in a different way art helps us do that that's why we use it interesting the placement of modern art in a very ancient and old school kind of business i mean it's one of the artifacts to help build that culture and build the physical environment to help build the strength of the of the team yeah and of course what it's doing is it's changing the perception of the customer as well as the perception of the staff you go into an organization with a dull sepia print on the wall you are expecting something dull and sepia tinted mm -hmm. if you've got something that is vibrant and challenging and not you expect that what you're going to get is something vibrant challenging and modern. yeah the brand experience that comes from that yeah very exactly interesting right. what about on a personal level what lights you up and why look i have three vices some people say rather more art is one of them. I mean, we collect art, art, sculpture. I mean, I've <laughs> just got so many branches, I've got lots of walls. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's a complete excuse. I am a complete sucker for classic yachts. So I have two 50-foot hmm. racing yachts from 1904 and 1905, two of Arch Logan, who was one of the great yacht designers in New Zealand in the early 1900s. I have two of those boats, which we race as often as we can. And then I like classic cars. I mean, I love a car that, in contrast to my enjoyment of modern art, um, modern cars turn me cold because they yes. at me and they flash at me. And they, Whereas, you know, a car that's simple, has a bit of power, a bit of water, a bit of oil, a bit of fuel. Yeah. 
and everything else you know you have to deal with i enjoy those so i have a number of classic cars and we my partner charlotte and i do things we've done with peaking paris and oh, wow. chevrolet and that yeah. sort of stuff so yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we do that fantastic we do that too so if it's a hole in the water or a hole in the road, you can tip money into it. I'm right there. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like some very expensive hobbies. That's awesome. Man, I thought I had an expensive hobby. I drive a 1975 Ford F350. So it's an old flatbed pickup. It's just a you know a solid yeah. truck. There's a beauty in the simplicity, the analog of it, and it's in great condition. And I mean, it, there's not a gas station that doesn't want to pass. And no. at oil prices <laughs> now, it's an issue. But I'm curious about the cars in New Zealand and your collection for vintage cars in North America. You know, we've got our our Porsches, we've got our Ferraris. You know, picture an old Dino or something like that, or an old three five six or something that's all high on my books. What are some of the flavors down there, or what's in your collection? We have- well, we have some down here and we have some in England because uh, I have kids in England, so I got that. Okay, I've got a 1933 MGJ2, a 1935 MGK3, a 938 3, 3.5 litre supercharged Bentley, a 1941 Chev. I've got, I'm missing three wheeler Morgan. And yeah, so lots from the 30s. Yeah, yeah, it is. I see. Look, this is my problem. I'm of the generation that looks for those areas and thought those are fabulous cars. Nobody Mm -hmm. wants them now because they're all your age looking at the cars from the 60s or 70s. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's so, so beautiful. The the curves of those cars and the era and the workmanship. I might be going a stretch too far here. I might have to delete myself out, but let's keep this neutral. I looked at the beauty of humans far differently after I looked at a a 1930s Lagonda and realized Mm -hmm. the asymmetry of the car, that the fact that it was not perfectly symmetrical like every car is now. And that's because it was made by hand. And the beauty of everything changed for me when I noticed, you know, how much workmanship had gone into that car. So really appreciate it. That's cool. Well, yeah, because again, off the thing, what my Bentley three and a half is a Peterson version. Now, Peterson is a Car manufacturing Devon, of all things. And what they do is they get a 1930 chassis and then they get usually an R type engine from 1951. Then the R type, the gear boxes usually from an R type on the Mark 6. And then they hand build the way you would have hand built. Because remember, you used to get the chassis, the engine, steering wheel, gearbox, mechanicals. Take it to a coach builder, coach builder. Right, of course. And they hand build everything else. And if you go and have a look at Top Gear, and I think there's a British Top Gear, there's a, a session on the Peterson Bentley. You know, James May looking at this thing and going, how do they do it for the money? It is extraordinary because mm. the whole thing is hand built by guys in a shed the way you used to build these cars. And they are absolutely works of art. They're just yeah. mobile works of art. And I find it interesting. I would pay you know, big money for a certain picture of a certain thing, but the amount of work that would go into one of these things is far. They're just, just mobile <laughs> pieces of art. 
And they give you an enormous buzz as well, which is what's really better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, one final question, because I've got to get on to the four-day work week, but with that <laughs> yeah. is, have you ever been to Pebble Beach, the Concourse de, de Lagos? No, it's on the list. you got to I do it, man. Yeah, I'm a sucker for Goodwood, if you've ever done the Goodwood okay. Revival. The Goodwood Revival is extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. It's a three-day fest which is dressed up to be a 1950s race meeting where everybody dresses up. And the wow. best the best car show is the car park. Right. Wow. <laughs> it's extraordinary. So it's well uh-huh. worth doing. Once in your life is the Goodwood Revival in September in England. Yeah. But, Excuse me, that's in England. I was thinking it was on the East Coast of the England. US, but in England. Yeah. No, in England. Okay. It's England. They do... Festival of Speed and the Revival, but, but seriously. Revival uh, very cool, is, man. It's something else. Yeah, we've got on a hard tangent here, but I very much enjoyed it. So let's get back to the four-day work week, because this is something that is, I think, it has the potential. And I mean, you, you've been demonstrating this with the global following that you've been building here. It could become the norm. And, and it's something that we've been considering. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why I, I reached out. I'm like, well, I might as well speak right to the source. <laughs> And please give us a high level. And then also for our listeners, we're also going to be interviewing one of your team, Joe, to talk more of the tactical implementation. But I'd love to hear your background on this. Okay. Well, the journey starts, and it's quite important. The journey starts with me reading an article in The Economist magazine, uh, UK Economist magazine, about productivity. And it was talking about a Canadian report and a UK report. This is back in... Must be 2017. They said that the Brits were productive for two and a half hours a day and the Canadians for one and a half. Now, I thought, well, that's really interesting. You know, why is that happening? This is true productivity. This is not time at work or how busy you felt. It was based on some form of objective measure of output. And I thought, well, you know, first of all, what's causing that? What is it that's stopping people from being truly productive for the time that they're at work? And then I started to think, and I thought, well, actually, if I gave people a day off, because I thought one of the things might well be interruptions from home, trying to do chores, dealing with kids, whatever it would. So I thought, what would happen if I gave my people more time off? But in exchange, I needed to get the same output that I was currently getting. Would they do things differently, knowing that in the Brit's case, I would have to get, I think it was 45 minutes of additional productivity. And that was based on a, a three-hour number, which a couple of other reports came out and said that. Or, of course, you were Canadian. You had to find 18 minutes of additional productivity. As a Canadian, I feel like I should be apologizing. <laughs> well, gosh, you. So I thought, is what would happen if I give them this deal? Would I get a different approach? And, and that led me to literally go back to New Zealand and go to my team and say, look, I've got this wild idea. So what we're going to do is we're going to pay you for five days. You only have to work for four, but I need to get the same level of productivity out there. Now, I don't know how to do this. So I am literally giving you guys the chance. And we came back to empowering people to rethink the business from the bottom up. So you tell me how you're going to do this differently. And then we ran a trial. And the trial, we found that our empowerment, engagement, enrichment scores went up 40% to the levels that, you know, a lot of the researchers here, we had 
Auckland University, Auckland University of Technology doing research alongside, um, said they'd never seen scores like this, ever, in New Zealand. And we found our teamwork and cohesion scores grew. We had more people said that they could do their job better working four days rather than five, and stress levels dropped 15% in the organisation. Then what we found, of course, the productivity had actually gone up 25%. So we were getting 125% of output on 80% of the time with a healthier, happier team. And subsequently, you know, sick days apart, mm. we were able to, you know, we, as I said, we're a dull, boring business, right? We were able to attract, you know, and retain high quality talent because what we were doing said far more about us as an organization than what was on the tin and the sign. You know, why would I work for a trust company? But actually, the company that was challenging the norms of how you work, that is a dynamic place to work. Mm. So, you know, that was really the journey. It had nothing to do with work-life balance. Yeah. Zero. It was all about productivity. How do I improve productivity? And I thought, I mean, I knew it would improve work-life balance. But that wasn't the driver. So whenever we're talking about this, we talk about this 180-100 concept, 100% pay, 80% time, provided we get 100% productivity. That's all we talk about. It's a rational business decision that makes your business work better and then pays all these other dividends out to families yeah, yeah, yeah. society. Yeah. It's coming from somebody who's a former banker. You're speaking with numbers. And you're improving with logic. What I'm hearing is 180, 100. And hey, if that works, then we're doing this. And, and how many years has this been implemented with you? And across how many of your organizations? Well, we've done it across the board. So even our tech companies, startup tech companies do support it. But we did the trial at the beginning of 2018. We went permanent at the end of 2018. So we ran the trial, got the research, tweaked the model a bit. So the way our model works is also we don't necessarily, we don't close for a break. We can't. We've got call centers, retail outlets. So we allow the teams to work out their own schedule. So each team has a schedule. So, you know, some people will work four days, take a day off. Some people will work five days, but take two afternoons off. Some people mm. work five days but compressed hours. So a lot of parents will say, well, childcare becomes a problem if I'm taking a day off. But actually, if I can drop my kids at school and then pick them up from school, I'm saving a fortune in childcare. And the great stories are then often the guys, you know, some people can walk his kid to school or, mm. or pick them up from school. Or, you know, I have a chap down in Dunedin and he would take two afternoons off and he would spend time with his granddaughter. And when he told the story, he would cry. That's what makes this work. Because what we're doing is we're giving people something that you can't put a price on. It's personally valuable. It's the time that they need to live their life to the best. I always have this mantra of I want people to be the best they can be at the office, but the best they can be at home. And that's helping him be the best he can be at home. Now, the price of that is I need my 180 hundred. So is he going to do anything to prejudice that delivery aside, the 100% productivity? Because what we did in us, we opted, the staff opt in on an individual and an annual basis. 
But we have a rule that says that your contract of employment remains five days away. So mm. we're gifted away. But that means if we don't get the productivity, we have the right, the legal right, to say, okay, sorry, back. Now, we've only ever had to do it once in the four years since we've been running it, and that was during the trial, where one team, and we mentioned this earlier, did take advantage of it. Half of them would take Friday off, half of them would take Monday off. And then they said, oh, well, you know, customer services dropped. There's a shop. You know, everybody else had structured the workflow so there was rotation through the teams and, and where they were covering all the places. So it's now second nature to our organization. This is what we do. And if I look at us on a per capita basis against our nearest direct competitor, we are four times as profitable. We are twice as productive on a per capita basis. Amazing. I appreciate that you also referenced the area where it failed as well. It's just not all, you know, sunshine and lollipops kind of thing, right? It takes some work. There's trial and error. And those who are implementing it need to balance that, but also see the potential upside. Yeah, look, this is the, again, this is a, comes back to what we were talking earlier about how you communicate responsibility. Where do you fit in? So everybody has to know in their team, not just what it is they do, they need to know what other people are doing because they're going to have to cover a bit of that work, obviously, when somebody is not in the office. You can't just leave a job till they get back. That would, you know, so you have much more cross-training, but you have a better appreciation of your impact on somebody else. So if you do something that helps you be productive, but actually slows down or makes somebody else unproductive, that doesn't work because mm. the team has to hit the goal. And it's not just about you. It's about how you work together. So that is also things about you know, how much disruption there is in the office. Do I keep inviting the world and its dog to attend a meeting that mm. they don't really need to be in? Or do I keep the meeting short and focused and only involve the people who really need to be there? Do I fire out emails, reply all, when in reality I just need to send it to you? You know, there's lots of little things. The bulk of the benefit we find is not from process change. It is from attitudinal, environmental, and teamwork perspective. Hmm. That's where the big benefits come. If you overlay process change on top of that, you'll get even more output. Right. Yeah. How do you deal with those who have highly competitive streaks? I mean, I would imagine that there's people in your organization who are ambitious to run for leadership positions or perhaps top dog positions. And how do you balance their ambition with the hours they work? Well, uh, <laughs> what we actually had to do, nobody in my organization is obligated to do a four-day week other than the leadership team. Well, so they, <laughs> well, I just had a little process do. that. No, well, that's exactly the point, right? Because the problem you find this, and you find this in an organization after organization that brings in flexible working policies or long holiday policy, whether they succeed or fail depends on the attitude of the line manager. So if you've got a line manager who believes in flexible working, then flexible working works. If they don't, it doesn't. Because mm. people mirror themselves on the leadership team, all right? So my leadership team has to walk the talk. Now, then you've just slightly inverted the question. So you want to work every hour God sense. You want to work five days a week. 
Well, what do you mean? You're not good enough to do it before? Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Very, very <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Just saying. Right, so you've changed the dynamic. I'm not interested in time. Yeah. I'm interested in output. Yes. Yeah. Time is irrelevant. And quality you know, you productivity. Think, yeah. So we give an example. You think a couple of consulting engineers, you give them a job, and they're all billing on six-minute blocks. They both write an identical report. One takes half an hour, one takes an hour. Why do I pay the one who took an hour twice as much as the one who took half an hour for the mm. same output? Yeah. Now, that is what we do. We're not rewarding output. We're dumbing it down because we're just doing time. I get just as much pay if I'm working you know, for my five days as that person's working five days because most of us aren't actually measuring what we do. We have a perception. And sometimes... The, that perception is wrong. That person gets in at seven o'clock in the morning, hanging jacket on the back of the chair, they're working late. That's the person I'm going to promote. But actually, if I'm getting the same output from somebody who comes in at 10 and leaves at four, the person I should be promoting is that person. Right. But if I don't know that and I'm not measuring that and I'm not focusing on that, I'm promoting the people who don't rethink how they work don't challenge the status quo yeah. and are very comfortable in the old model of working. It's a terrible analogy here. I see a terrible analogy in the sense of the person who's working analog to the person who's working digital and refining their process and, and being better and finding ways to scale their own output versus just sticking with status quo. Yeah. I mean, look, the five-day week is a construct of what, the early 20th century, there's some arguments as to who did it first, but Henry Ford is, is viewed as one of them. So here is a chap who has repetitive manufacturing industry and actually comes up with a process of you know five days a week and partly that's to, to create more leisure time so these workers could buy his cars. Why is a method of working for early 20th century repetitive manufacturing relevant for the information age. You know, why do we think where creativity often you know, a lot more mental work in a lot of industries, why do we think that that method of working is suitable, relevant, or indeed optimizes performance when we're not doing repetitive manufacturing? And that, to me, is the heart of this. And anybody who then argues that actually, well, you know, five-day week is fine. Well, let's be clear. I mean, we had before the five-day, we had the six-day week. We had the seven-day week. You know, before the eight-hour day, we had the 10-hour day and the 12-hour day. And I'm guaranteed there'd be some bewhiskered bloke going, you know, the world is going to end if we drop the working day from 12 hours to 10 hours. It's exactly the same issue. The way I like to phrase it is if you think that the way we work today is the best it can possibly be, you are saying that the pinnacle of human achievement hmm. in your organization or indeed the world, we've hit it. There is no way we can be better than that. We've now, plateaued, yeah. You've plateaued. And if your leadership team is saying that, get different leaders. Because to my way of thinking, that says more about them than it says about anything else. Wonderful. 
Man, very cool. I'm glad you've painted some color on this. And I'm looking forward and for our listeners as well as the conversation with Joe to get into the tactics and getting this implemented. And so I look forward to that. Two more questions, just to be respectful of your time. I'm curious to, if you're a reader or anything that you've read that has been interesting, it could be business related or not, but what strikes your interest? Oh, yeah. I've moved quite a lot into reading now. I mean, partly, I think... When I, I wrote this, the book on that four-day week because I couldn't drink that much coffee. And having done that, that prompted me to get back to reading. So I read a lot. It's a little bit of a split between novels and business, but I'm reading probably more business books now than I've ever read in my life. I don't read books on how to do it better, but I read books on business scenario so i've the bad bloods to this world uh, i'm actually just reading that right now yeah, yeah the house of pain which was fantastic i'm reading what was the house of pain the sacklers the Pardon sacklers me? the people who produced the drugs oh oh the um, painkillers if you haven't of course read the, the sackler book, family yes it's, and oxycontin yeah yeah it's an extraordinary book it's okay it's well worth reading that I've got what's it called? Fulfillment, which is success and failure in one click America. That's quite interesting because I'm a bit mm. interested on gig and the adverse impacts of gig. So, you know, I've just reread Moneyball because I've, <laughs> I've had to get my vineyard team to read Moneyball because they need to understand that making wine is like baseball hmm. and they aren't quite there yet but i'm hmm. working on them which is the concept of the oakland days had a team of very lousy generally players but they were good at getting not they were good at getting the first base and therefore they didn't get out and therefore you load the base and therefore eventually you get the run eventually you get the win and there's no home runs and fabulous plans. yeah yeah, yeah. bizarrely in a lot of business, that's what business is about. Let's get that first base. Let's not try and hit it out of the park. Let's do that thing well. Yeah. And then the next thing well. The compound so interest wine, of an incremental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and wine is similar. It's often about how you convert, you know, the grape, the juice to cash. And quite often we forget about the conversion to cash bit and we focus on producing this fabulous one. But if that fabulous one isn't, sold because the market's not big enough. You need to produce good wine, but not quite as fabulous. Mm. Sell over here. And I mm. can make as much out of selling it by the glass as I can make selling out of the bottle. And that is the concept, if you will. Yes, of, of course. Of money ball as it applies to uh, viticulture. <laughs> I, love the, I love the connection there. That's amazing. Oh, oh, good man. Wow. Final question, Andrew, is what would you like to be remembered for? Look, you know, you don't get many chances to change the world. And I do think that if I could be remembered for being somebody who helped change the mindset about how we work so that people can, can work less, can, you know, have more time for society, for their families, for themselves. If that's the legacy I leave, then you know, I think that's a pretty good one. I'm not interested in a lot of the, the trappings and baubles of that. But, you know, the best way I can describe this is when Charlotte and I did the Pinking to Paris, we'd just driven across the border into Russia. And the phone rang in the car. And 
it was Sunday from my office in New Zealand. They said, do you realize that Dmitry Medvedev has just name-checked you, the Prime Minister of Russia, has just name-checked you, and has said that he's read about the perpetual guardian four-day week and he thinks it's the future for Russia. Hmm. Then the phone rings again, and they said, where are you? And he said, well, we're in Siberia. He said, well, it's the nearest town. He said, well, it's never Sibirsk, and we'll be there in about eight hours. And they said, there will be TV crews from Moscow waiting at the hotel. We were late. I was covered in oil. I didn't need the TV. And then as we left Russia about two weeks, two, three weeks later, they announced that the parliament was going to be drafting legislation to reduce the working week in Russia to quarter. Oh, my God. Now, that was quite a biggie. Or we'll bring one closer to home. You know, we'd spent quite a bit of time talking to Mark Takano's office, the congressman from California, and he dropped a bill into Congress just before Christmas to reduce the working week in America 32 hours and then got 100 progressives in Congress and Senate supporters. Now, I'm a great believer that, you know, this says a little step, you know, in a 240-person business, the far end of the world in New Zealand. You know, we dropped that little pebble into the pond in 2018. And what have we got now? We've got major government initiative in Iceland. We've got announced trials in Scotland, Wales, Spain, the European Union's looking at it. Japan has passed legislation. India's passed legislation. The UAE has done legislation. Russia's done it. America has got a, a bill going in. Everywhere you look, you have governments starting to talk about three thinking the working way. As I said, don't get many chances to change the world. That's what happens to be mine. Wonderful, man. What a great thing to do. So thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Enjoyed it. Yeah. A hell of an interview, man. Very fun. So let's wrap it up there. Thank you, Andrew. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.